you're allowed to talk to me. I don't know that my congregation uptown knows that, but I'm just going to give you explicit invitation there. Hi, all. So, this, this is the story that every Sunday school child knows as the Good Samaritan, right? And many of you know this story, too. Do you know what word isn't in the scripture? How closely were you listening? Pop quiz. What word of the Good Samaritan story isn't in the story? Disinfected. Disinfected is right. That was a little uh, exegesis to help us all understand why there was wine being poured on a man on the side of the road. <laughs> what other word is not there? A more common word. Good. Good is not in the scripture. The Samaritan here is not called good by Jesus. Good is an adjective that has been invented by the centuries and cemented into this text by the American Protestant work ethic. It's not in the text. And this is a problem for how we think about this story. The problem, the problem comes when humans start singling out something or someone as good, as by specifically saying that something or someone is good, we're implicitly saying that some other things or some other people aren't. If this is the good Samaritan we hear, well then surely some ears, probably more ancient ones than ours, though we could think of other groups of people that we might single out as, well, that's a good one. Other people would have understood that good must be noteworthy compared to all the other Samaritans who must, well, because this one got a description, those other Samaritans must be bad. So the problem when we get ourselves into the good-bad good, binary is that good people cannot do bad things. This is, the, this is the truth, right? And bad people, well, they're not inclined to do any good. We know of the good Samaritan, but this is a bit of whitewashing of the rest of the Samaritan's identity. Now, you see, historically, the Samaritans were a race of people largely considered evil or renegade by the Israelites in Jerusalem. They kept to themselves. They had their own worship space, not in the temple. And over centuries of adaptation and, quite frankly, having to do it for themselves, they developed a practice of Judaism that was neither better nor worse than that of temple Judaism. But it was, indeed, quite different. In her book that I know many of you have read, Robin DeAngelis speaks of the problem of the good and bad binary. She talks about it in our own modern-day racism. In White Fragility, D'Angelo writes that the good-bad frame is a false dichotomy. As if, well, she writes, I think of myself as a good person, I cannot possibly do something bad. And instead of focusing on my own actions, like, say, the priest or the Levite in the story should possibly do, instead, I must defend my character. And that is where all of my energy will go. The Good Samaritan. The Samaritans were a race unlike the ancient Hebrews. Due to their capture and enslavement by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE, by the time of Jesus, they were largely a mixed-race people, half Jew, half Gentile, which to the ancient Israelites in Jerusalem could not possibly have been any good at all. Thus, the tradition is not that the Samaritans as a whole could be good, nor even could one among them do something good, but this one, this one specific one in this story, centuries of tradition have lifted up and called good. 
the good that isn't in the text, that has been written in by our oral tradition. This is the continued othering of all the Samaritan people, a people I'm willing to bet very few of us have actually met. And yet our tradition, by what we say that isn't in the text, and by what we don't say that is in the text, preserves the racial distinction between good Hebrews and bad Samaritans. And while signaling out a good Samaritan as a token, an anomaly, someone whose good actions, well, we allow our own expectations to be surprised. Now, the community around Luke had a great interest in talking about what individual people, whatever their background, could do to become righteous before God. See, Luke is the gospel of Jesus Christ for all people, Jews and Greeks, men and women, Throughout the text, Luke takes as one of his primary goals the task of expanding the Jewish Messiah sent by the Jewish God for the Jewish people. That's the story of the Gospel of Matthew. Luke takes that story and expands it into one that is available for all people. Now, throughout Luke, there is a story, there's story after story of God's surprises. And Luke is thoughtful to turn many expectations on its head or at least to call them out. Luke, alone among the Gospels, begins with a conversation among women, not exactly what you would expect to find 2,000 years ago when dealing with the Son of God. But it is Mary and her cousin Elizabeth discussing their pregnancies that first name the mysteries of what is about to happen. It is out of a woman's mouth that the Magnificat is sung. And Luke is also skilled at subtly undermining the positive biases we have as well. Note in our own text today that the lawyer, I love this, and apologies to any lawyers in the room, but the lawyer gets the right answer. Well done, everyone. Jesus praises him and gives him a gold star for a perfect answer. But note in verse 29 what that lawyer then does. Verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked another question. The A-plus Jesus gave wasn't good enough here, and the lawyer, a sort of know-it-all by definition, presses on. We know some of these people. He doesn't ask a clarifying question to help the people around him understand more. He doesn't ask to understand God's righteousness or love. Rather, the good lawyer, the well-educated, studied, fully employed, upper-middle-class, nice guy devoted to doing justice, he wants to justify himself. Now, Luke notes here and elsewhere the tendency of the righteous to seek to justify themselves rather than focusing on God. And we all know what this feels like, right? We've all been in a meeting or a classroom or a talkback or a seminar where someone, maybe it was us, asks a question that isn't really a question, but is meant to show how smart or righteous the person is, that they're really there to show you that they know as much as you. It doesn't point to the bigger question in the room. It doesn't talk about the reign of God. The posturing of the lawyer here in Jesus' parable is recognizable to all of us because we know some of these know-it-alls, these mansplaining behaviors so well. And friends, it's exhausting. And to answer his question, Jesus tells a parable where those who are thought to be righteous, the priests and the Levites, fail, while one of those good-for-nothing Samaritans surprises us by doing good. How often is the lawyer's behavior our own tendency today? 
How often are our own cultural or systemic biases surprised by the basic humanity of one individual's faithfulness and God-centered response? How often do we use these expectations, these us's and them's, to uphold the inequity in all of our systems? This one Samaritan's actions, while good, do not immediately erase the centuries of racism against the Samaritan people. This one lawyer's egoism doesn't suddenly take away his high social status and privilege. The acts of the individual of individualism may not be what we expect from those people, but when focused on individually, they do little to change the bias, the prejudice, or the cultural inequity. Every time we refer to, we refer to this single Samaritan man as the good Samaritan, we are unconsciously reminding ourselves and building up the belief that all the other Samaritans are bad. Replace any group of people for Samaritans. Friends, this sort of individual exceptionalism when faced with cultural oppression has no part in the building of the reign of God. Now this past week, I'm going to share a little bit about what's been going on up at West End. One of our deacons, which is to say one of your deacons too, as we are all together in this collegiate soup, she sent me the results of an AP survey that was conducted in May, just two months ago. The headline of the data point that I'm going to talk about says, Americans back more diverse clergy. Poll finds that most Americans who profess a faith are open to allowing women and gay men to join the clergy. My immediate response, given our own clergy structure up at West End and also here today, was thank God. <laughs> Among the data, 68% of mainline Protestants and 78% of evangelical Protestants think women should be allowed to be clergy. Interesting that the evangelicals are beating us, right? Meanwhile, 70% of mainline Protestants and only 34% of evangelical Protestants thinks gay men should be clergy. That's not a real surprise in the evangelical set. And while our deacon was right to send this to me in celebration, and there is indeed much here that we should celebrate, this data is not without its problems. First, that mainline Protestants are more okay with a gay male pastor than with a female one tells me that our work in toppling patriarchy and combating sexism is far from done. Second, while the survey sample was most likely statistically diverse given the source, I'm going to bet that the woman pastor imagined by those survey respondents was white. And the gay man imagined was probably not also white, but he was cisgendered, heteronormative, and, you know, the kind of guy's guy who can say things like, I'm just like everyone else, bro. I just happen to be gay. <laughs> there are other problems in this data set too, other questions that I think we can all see how the good-bad binary gets preserved of the us and of the them and the tendency, just like the lawyer talking to Jesus, of clinging to our own righteousness rather than naming and owning our own privilege and the work that still needs to be done. The Samaritan wasn't any more good because he helped the man in need, but he was all the more human. Human, more than good or bad, is a category to which we can all belong and in which each of us 
might claim a complicated, non-binary, multifaceted identity, an identity of both and, of neither nor, of contradictions and of specificities. Two weeks ago, many of us celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots that are now commonly called Gay Pride. And the Heritage of Pride march, in which you all had a beautiful float, and in which many of you eventually marched, and which some of us from <laughs> Collegiate also marched, was a wonderful celebration of the rights that have been won. It was also an exhausting, poorly managed, too long and bloated expression of many, many things. And on that same day, the Queer Liberation March and Rally, which initially began, go ahead, yeah. It began as the Reclaim Pride March and which stemmed from similar community-based organizing efforts to those that were led by Marsha P. Johnson and other fierce queens in the 60s, that were led by those amazing men and women who, for, who formed and plastered our city with ACT UP posters in the 80s and 90s, that were led again by Gays Against Guns just a few years ago, that march sought to remove capitalism and police presence from pride in order to continually focus, just as Jesus does, on the needs of the least of these. I joined that rally in Central Park two weeks ago and I witnessed the stories and needs of communities within the LGBTQ plus world that are most in need. And here in New York City, as the longest pride march in history made its way down Fifth Avenue, these communities, well, the communities in Central Park, they were not the L's or the G's. They weren't the white ones. They didn't have corporate sponsorship or fancy wristbands, but the T's and the Q's and the gender non-conforming and the HIV positive and the black and brown ones who don't have access to higher education, nor do they work at large companies with diversity and inclusion mandates. And I've been thinking about what these two marches have to say to one another, what their expressions are and what it is that they might have to say to us. And there's a lot of theology still required to process these expressions. But one of the chief things on my mind right now is the racial and class differences between the two gatherings. Again, the words of Robin DeAngela are helpful. Whiteness, she writes, has psychological advantages that translate into material return. Now, not while, while not all of the Heritage of Pride March was white, and not all of the Queer Liberation Rally was people of color, there was indeed a divide. A divide that said corporate sponsorship and material returns and public awareness and rainbow capitalism in one direction only. Now one of the things that feels really true to me is that whether on that road way back when that Jesus imagined where a brother was beaten and left for dead, or on either of those avenues just two weeks ago where countless siblings marched for life, our expectations of what or who is good and what or who is revolutionary or renegade or rebellious or other, well, those expectations hold fast. What Middle Church knows, what all of you know, and I know this about you, and I'm not even here every week, you know that you love changing and challenging expectations. You love taking a word like revolution, which can be difficult for nice, good, white, straight-acting folk, and love, which let us also interrogate, love can be difficult for people struggling 
to make basic ends meet, or for those who have been told time and again that their love is abhorrent, or for anyone who just hasn't found the right to match, or for someone who has been abused or neglected, or who suffers with mental illness. You put words like revolution and love together. Revolutionary love is your queer act of challenging expectations and calling for something better. And my God, friends, it is beautiful. It's exactly the sort of queering that Jesus does time and time again throughout each of the Gospels. Now, Jackie already told you, I am the first openly gay senior minister in the nearly 400-year history of the Collegiate Church of the City of New York. And at the same time, I can pretty much guarantee you that I am not the first one to know what a stubble-on-stubble kiss feels like. My privilege is that I get to be gay openly and that my soon-to-be husband is loved by my congregation and that every child that walks through those doors know that they will be loved just as they are whoever they will become. I have this privilege even as I still hear phrases expressing the concern that I might make West End Church gay or a gay church or that, you know, this is, this is my favorite response. Well, you know, we've always welcomed everyone. It doesn't matter that you're gay. I have this privilege even when for every day, friends, every single day during my first several weeks at West End, I heard some version, I heard some version from some well-meaning person in my congregation say, but we've never had a gay senior minister before. Women and people of color, other people, Samaritans, who have had to struggle to be seen as capable and individual, they know how undermining these statements can be all too well. For a good little white boy from the middle-class suburbs, I had no idea that there were any glass ceilings left for me to crash. That was also my privilege. What I know now is that there but for the grace of God go I, and I give thanks every day for the gift of gay and the call to queer that God has given me. I am also determined that in times like this, times since the election of 2016, times of disparate marches and the normalizing tendency of both patriarchy and capitalism, the kind displayed on every corporate float filled with shirtless white men, that it's time for me to personally get gayer. It's time for me, and indeed for all of us, to queer more expectations. Jesus loves queering expectations. He has no use for binaries, and his ministry is one of breaking them down. He takes us beyond good Samaritan or bad priest and calls us to what is fully human. Fully human, which for Jesus' own queer identity is also fully God. Jesus is the essence of the both end, of the neither or. Jesus is inter and trans and multi and every and all and specific. Jesus in his own time and Christ in all time will not abide any box or any label or any normalizing tendency. And friends, faith doesn't have to either. We don't have to either. Rather, we are all called to be more queer like Christ. We can take all of our identities and our struggles and our privileges, we can take all of this in order to become more fully human. And thus, through Christ, 
more in the image of God. Friends, the queerness of Christ's ministry is that Jesus came to offer life and life abundant. Abundant knows no boundaries. It knows no binaries, but is a wonder of queer diversity and of table-turning revolution. In just a few moments, we're going to watch a video about some of this movement that Middle Church is leading. The question is, will you join this movement? Are you ready to get a bit more queer, to defy a few more expectations, celebrate a bit more diversity, and, well, to think of all the Samaritans rather than just the one as good? Good in the image of God. Good in the queer eye of Christ. Good for all of us. Good for humanity and good for God.